Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Justice Breyer joined the Chief Justice's concurrence in an opinion we'll talk about later in the episode. What do you think I was going to say? That never gets old. Never. So, Kimberly, we got a lot to talk about this week. A big grant in an abortion case. We also got a bunch of decisions, and we're going to bring on the lawyers who won one of those decisions unanimously a little later in the episode. But first, let's talk about this grant next term. Is that going to spell the end of the right to abortion in this country? There's lots of people speculating on that. So the Supreme Court agreed to take up uh, an abortion case. And I think one of the things that has progressives concerned is that it's not one of these tangential issues that the court's been hearing. So we had, you know, a case a few terms ago, I think, about, you know, whether uh, California can require crisis pregnancy centers to give certain information about pregnancy and abortions. And, you know, this one really tackles the issue head on. And in particular, you know, kind of goes to the heart of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I know everybody talks about Roe. Uh, Roe kind of established the right, but Casey is really the standard that uh, courts apply. And this certainly does have the potential to, to change that and to make it uh, easier for states to pass restrictions. The restriction here is a 15-week uh, ban on abortions um, with some limited exceptions, but Texas just passed a six-week abortion ban. So, um, they'll, you know, we'll see how the justices kind of try to navigate those lines. But it should be a big term because, right, we'll get abortion and guns possibly a couple months before the midterm elections should have no impact. And affirmative action is on the way. That's being briefed now, and it's a likely grant eventually. That one does seem like it might be a likely grant. That's a case out of Harvard, um, which is challenging affirmative action. I think, though, that we're going to be waiting for kind of its co-case, case against a public school, so that the justices can kind of tackle the issue private and public together. All right, so let's get into these opinions. We got four of them on Monday. Kimberly, you want to talk about two involving the environment and taxes? Oh, do I ever. Um, Yeah, so the court handed down these four opinions, um, and that means that we're at the halfway point with 29 cases resolved and 29 remaining. So this first one, the environmental case, is also sort of a civil procedure case. It's BP versus mayor and city of Baltimore. And this was a seven-to-one decision. Let me do my math. Yeah, 7-1 decision by Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Justice Sotomayor was the solo dissent, and Justice Alito did not take part. Now, in this case, Baltimore has sued energy companies in Maryland over climate change. But the question here is a procedural one. It's one of removal, that is removal from state court where the city sued to federal court where the companies want the case to be heard, and specifically whether federal appellate courts can consider an appeal of an order sending a case back to state court. Everybody got that? Um, So siding with the energy companies, the court said, yeah, federal courts can hear these kinds of issues. And, uh, you know, that's pretty technical, but not the last we'll hear of this case, I think. And what happened in this tax case? CIC services. CIC services versus IRS, obviously a tax case here. The issue is the Anti-Injunction Act and its requirement that in order to challenge a tax, you typically have to pay it. Uh, before you can go to court, uh, for obvious reasons. The Uncle Sam wants his money. Uh, the challenge here was to IRS guidance 
on what taxpayers have to disclose to the IRS. So it's not the kind of case that the Anti-Injunction Act would typically apply to. Uh, but the catch here is that there can be a tax penalty if you fail to comply. So the court here sided with the taxpayer, yay, and said that the Anti-Injunction Act doesn't apply. Uh, that was an opinion by Justice Kagan, which was unanimous. But we should talk uh, before bringing on our guest about one that was not unanimous Mm -hmm. um, and, in fact, had some pretty colorful exchanges between Justice uh, Kavanaugh in the majority and Justice Kagan in dissent uh, set the stage for us in Edwards versus Benoit. Sure. So last term, we had that big case, Ramos against Louisiana. Ramos said serious offenses, jury verdicts need to be unanimous. And so that was a divided ruling itself that was pretty contentious. But the question, as is always the question in big criminal cases that are handing down new procedural rules, is whether it applies retroactively. And so that was a case that the court took up very quickly right after they decided Ramos to hear it this term in the Edwards case. And the court said, no, it does not apply retroactively. And so retroactivity is pretty complex, but just to set up kind of the part to take away from this case. There is a 1989 case called Teague, which said that new criminal procedural rules can apply retroactively if they attain what's called this watershed status. But since Teague, the court has actually never found a case to satisfy that. And so it's sort of elusive in terms of when is this actually going to apply? The court has handed down a bunch of significant rulings since then with rights that seem like they're pretty important, but still were never granted this watershed retroactive status. All types of super important cases, nothing was getting retroactive status, but there was still this Teague decision, which said there's the possibility for it to happen. And so in this case, it was a decision written by Justice Kavanaugh's 6-3 opinion. He said, no, Ramos does not attain this watershed retroactive status. But going beyond that, even more significantly, they said, you know, once and for all, we're just going to say that this elusive Teague exception, which has never been found to apply, actually just doesn't exist anymore. So they basically overruled that, say that's not a possibility anymore. So it doesn't apply here. And it's never going to apply anywhere else either. So, okay, so they didn't have briefing on this issue of overruling Teague, um, which is something that the dissent is pretty um, quick to point out. But they never, the majority never actually says that it's overruling Teague, right? I mean, that's that's what happens, but it uses like weird language, like the rule doesn't have vitality. You said it's moribund. Yeah, I know. I had to look that one up. Um, why, what are, what's happening here? Why don't they just say Teague is overruled? I think just opinions use weird squirrely language, but I think it was pretty clear that that's what was happening here. Um, I mean, it was a thing that the case said, so even if it's not just overruling everything that that case said straight up, it's overruling at least the possibility of there being this watershed retroactive exception for new criminal procedural rules. I think it's just going forward, that's that's just done. Um, and we were talking about this, Kimberly, a little bit before the other day, how this could have relatively little practical impact because a case like Ramos, which establishes this new right, comes around very rarely. And I don't think, especially on this court, we're going to see a lot of opinions you know, landmark type opinions for criminal defendants that are going to raise this question of whether it applies retroactively. So regardless of the the merits of saying that this Teague exception no longer exists, I really don't know practically how often 
even the possibility of that was going to come up anytime soon. But for better or worse, that is no longer a possibility unless they just someday overrule that. You never know. All bets are off these days. So we'll see if it continues to have vitality. (laughs) Okay, Justice Kagan's pretty mad in her dissent, it seems like to me. Um, And actually, you know, she does, as I mentioned at at the top of this, share a couple of kind of sharp exchanges with um, Justice Kavanaugh. What is she upset about? She's upset because she thinks she's the only one on the court that's actually playing by the rules. So one interesting thing about Ramos was that she dissented in that case, joining, I think it was Roberts and Alito. And so she actually said in her dissent in Edwards, I did so for stare decisis reasons, but now Ramos is on the books and I feel the need to faithfully apply it. She was quoting back the language that Gorsuch, who wrote Ramos and Kavanaugh, who joined at least part of the Ramos opinion, they were using all of this flowery language about how this is the most important right ever and you would be wild to think otherwise and so she says look you guys thought this was so important but now you're not even giving your ruling from last term it's due justice kavanaugh yeah he didn't like that well so kavanaugh didn't like that and in doing so he said look you think you're you know miss criminal defense friend, you know, I'm the one who actually ruled for these guys last term, you dissented. And then she says in her own footnote back, that's not how this works. We take these cases one at a time. It's not this, I think she used the term judicial scorekeeping. So I think it really just boils down to, and we see in this a lot, I think with Justice Kagan, there's all this talk about how she, I think at least tries to portray herself as being consistent, which leads her sometimes to line up with the Republican appointees when some of the other Democratic appointees don't. And I think we saw some of her frustration in she's just really not getting anything out of that. Uh, Well, uh, we probably will be hearing a lot more about stare decisis when we hear that abortion case. Exactly, because that's the lineup. The six Republican appointed justices who are in the Edwards majority, those are the justices that people are watching for next term to say, are these people going to care about precedent? Mm -hmm. And to what degree is it just going to go by the same way as this Teague retroactive exception, which obviously is something less on people's minds than something like abortion. But the bigger point, I think this has people thinking about how the court's treating precedent. So should we bring on our guests and talk about another uh, sort of criminal case that's It's not criminal, but it is criminal. Sure. I can set this one up very quickly. Cornelia against Strom. This was a 9-0 opinion written by Justice Thomas. The question here was whether what's called the community caretaking exception to the Fourth Amendment allows officers to go into a home and search and seize without a warrant. In a prior case, they said that this exception exists involving impounded automobiles that you can do that without a warrant, as long as you're doing so not for criminal investigatory purposes. And so in this case, which we'll get into a little bit more, which deals with police responding to a call about a potentially suicidal person, they wound up going in and seizing guns and seizing the person. And the question is whether cops, can they go in and into a home without a warrant? Does that extend into the home from the car rationale? And Justice Thomas's very short opinion said, no, that makes no sense the automobile logic doesn't apply. This decision that they overturned was on a First Circuit panel that included now retired Justice David Souter. So his some of his former colleagues unanimously overturned him there. I think it'll be interesting if Justice Breyer retires and then, you know, starts to sit on the First Circuit and, you know, 
you've got two former justices <laughs> sitting in that circuit. Exactly. So should we bring on our guests? Shai Varetsky and Emily Kennedy are attorneys in Skadden Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation Group. Shai, who clerked for Justice Scalia, is head of the practice. Emily, who clerked for Justice Alito, is an associate. Together, they scored a unanimous win this week in the Cornelia case. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So Kimberly and I had just talked about the case briefly and... We know now that this community caretaking rule doesn't extend to the home, but what's the practical impact of the ruling as you see it? So the significance of the court's decision is that it confirms that police cannot enter homes unless they have a warrant or there is an emergency. The court has carefully delineated the exceptions to the warrant requirement to things like emergency aid, hot pursuit of a felon, and uh, it has not expanded those. So this case was significant because some lower courts had created a new exception to the warrant requirement where police could enter homes to perform community caretaking functions. And that phrase is really as amorphous as it sounds. Some of the lower courts admitted that the, the potential list of community caretaking functions is too numerous to to articulate. The community caretaking exception originated in a 1973 Supreme Court case called Katie, and that case involved a search of a car that police had towed away from the scene of an accident. An officer searched the car after it was towed without a warrant because he was looking for the owner's gun. The the court upheld that search as a permissible under, well, because the police were performing a caretaking function. But when they talked about community caretaking, it was in the context of functions that police perform really out on the road when they encounter vehicle accidents, disabled vehicles, things like traffic control. So for the lower courts to take that exception that was designed for vehicles and applied in the context of vehicles and expand it to the home was really quite a a, a radical move. And uh, in this case, it was uh, it would have allowed the police and the police were claiming that they were allowed to enter Mr. Tenelia's home and send him off involuntarily to a psychiatric evaluation when there was no crime involved. And then after he had left for the evaluation and gone to the hospital, go into his home and go into his bedroom and garage to seize his gun. So you talked a little bit about how, you know, caretaking can really encompass a really whole host of things. Can you tell us a little bit about how what the police were doing in this particular case? So in this case, Mr. Cornelia and his wife had had a dispute over a coffee mug one evening. And in a melodramatic gesture, Mr. Cornelia placed an unloaded gun on the table and said, why don't you just shoot me and get me out of my misery? His wife left and spent the night at the hotel. She tried to reach him the next, the next morning, and when she was unable to reach him on the phone, she called the police and asked them to perform a welfare check. She emphasized that she wasn't worried about herself or her own safety, but she was concerned that her husband might be suicidal. The police spoke to Mr. Cornelia at his house. He was calm and cooperative and denied any suicidal intent, but the officers on the scene decided they thought that he might some danger to himself or others, so they involuntarily transported him to a hospital for psychiatric evaluation. And then they went into his home right after he left and took his, his guns from the bedroom and garage, also claiming that those guns presented a danger 
to either Mr. Tenelia, who again wasn't there, or to others in the vicinity. So they their only justification for their actions when Mr. Tenelia later sued them for violating his Fourth Amendment rights, their only justification was this community caretaking exception. And the Supreme Court's holding makes clear, the court unanimously held that the community caretaking exception does not extend to homes. And because that was the officer's only justification here, the court vacated the First Circuit's decision. And so at the arguments, looking back to it, the justices expressed a fair amount of concern about being able to care for people who are suicidal or elderly people who fell. Now that the case turned out the way that it did, and you did win this unanimous ruling, what's going to happen in these situations where there is a suicidal person or an elderly person? Are police now going to be restricted in what they can do, or is it just going to be called something different when they do it? I think those situations are going to be dealt with by the existing exceptions that have always existed for the warrant requirement. If there's an exigent circumstance, if there's actually an imminent need for police or for somebody else performing a welfare check, a social worker or otherwise to go in, then they can do that. But there has to be that degree of imminence. And you're right that this argument was all about hypothetical situations that uh, are different from the the actual facts of this case. You you typically get that with Supreme Court arguments. Of course, they're always asking about hypotheticals. But uh, this one, we were talking about cats up on trees. Uh, Let's suppose, Mr. DeSisto, that police get a call from a a neighbor and it says, you know, the Johnsons uh, are away. I I know they're not here. Uh, And they've got this fence around their backyard. It's, It's locked. Uh, but there's a cat up in the tree. Uh, can you can you come and help you know get the cat down? Uh, is that uh, uh, community caretaking? Uh, elderly people who don't show up for a dinner appointment. Uh, Mr. Doretsky, uh, let's say the police get a call. It's eight o'clock at night. Uh, the person says their you know elderly neighbor. They invited her to the dinner at six. It's eight o'clock. Uh, she's never late for anything. She's not answering the phone. They haven't seen her leave the house. Uh, They're worried. They ask the police if they could come over and check it out. The police do that. They go onto the property. Uh, They can't see much through the windows, but the back door is open. Um, They go in. Um, She's not there, but she comes back uh, and says, uh, what are you doing here? Sues sues them under 1983 for violating her Fourth uh, Fourth Amendment rights. Does she win? I think in that situation, uh, you'd have to analyze whether the police had an objective basis for believing that there was emergency there. Well, go ahead and analyze it. I've given you all the facts. Do they have an objective basis because the neighbors uh, say she hasn't, uh, they haven't seen her all day, she didn't come over for dinner, uh, she's never late? Uh, Is that enough? No, I think that that alone would not be enough. I think you would need some additional fact to suggest that there was a true emergency and that there was no other alternative for the police but to go in. But at the end of the day, I think the significance of the case is that in only four pages and really only in one page of analysis, the court emphatically reaffirmed prior doctrine that there is no separate community caretaking exception for the home. All of these situations have to be dealt with under existing doctrines, which do allow for police to go in if there is a true emergency. But but that's what it has to be. It has to be a real emergency. So, Shai, you mentioned that this was a short four-page ruling, but we had multiple concurrences that outweighed the length, anyway, of the 
actual opinion. What did you make of all of that and what kind of conclusion we're supposed to draw from all these separate opinions that were attached to the main ruling? Well, what I really wonder is the extent to which the justices in a future case will agree about the breadth of this existing exception for exigent circumstances. This case really didn't call for the court to decide that, first of all, because the respondents had waived any reliance on exigent circumstances in the lower courts. And second of all, because as Emily described the facts, by the time the police went to check on Mr. Cornelia, 12 hours had passed since his supposedly suicidal statement. So that wasn't, uh, that wasn't an imminent sort of emergency. And so the court just didn't have to decide that here. But I think it was obvious from the, the extended questions and hypotheticals and oral arguments. And as you point out, from the, the lengthy concurrences that are several times the, the length of the, the opinion itself, that the justices are concerned with this. I just don't know that they are as unanimous about how to interpret the uh, the exigent circumstances doctrine and what its breaths are, what its breath is, uh, as they are about the the lack of any separate community caretaking exception. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned the um, the hypo that was brought up about you know an elderly woman, and actually some of the concurrence pick up on this too. Do you feel like they were asking for advice, like just to make sure if you know they're getting older that you know, someone can come and rescue them. Well, look, I think these are I think these are tricky situations because it's it, absolutely it's a serious problem if you have an elderly person who falls in a home uh, and needs help. On the other hand, you could have elderly people who just choose not to answer the door. They want their privacy and they don't surrender their Fourth Amendment rights just because they choose not to answer the door and not to answer the phone. Uh, you can also have older people who may have something to hide. Uh, if the police barge into a house in the name of checking on somebody to make sure they're okay. But while they're there, they, found, they find drugs or other evidence of criminal activity. Under the plain view doctrine, that's evidence that can be used against the person. And, and the Fourth Amendment protects against that. So there, there are significant safety concerns that I think the, the justices were worried about. But there are also real Fourth Amendment interests here. Uh, and that's why, again, the existing doctrine that I think the court reaffirmed here, that where there's a true emergency, you can go in, but otherwise you can't, uh, strikes the right balance between the need the need to care for people, but also important Fourth Amendment interests in the home. Um, this is a Fourth Amendment case, but I wonder, you know, you mentioned there are all kinds of things that police could find in there. Maybe they find drugs. I wonder how significant it is that, um, you know, this kind of implicates the Second Amendment. And we know that there are justices who have some pretty strong feelings about that. Um, you know, do you think that influenced their decision in, in, in any way? I mean, I know it's really no way to tell, but... You know, no way to tell. And I was actually a little bit surprised not to get more questioning about that at the oral argument. Uh, as I said, the, the hypos were really about the elderly person at home or cats who have gone up trees and whether the police can rescue the cat. To the extent the Second Amendment was on their minds, they weren't talking much about that. Uh, it's also interesting looking at the array of amici who filed in this case. Uh, you did have a number of gun-related organizations that filed, but you also had the ACLU and the American Conservative Union filing a joint brief together. You had the Cato Institute, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, Institute for Justice. I think it really showed the, the broad interest in this issue. Basically, everybody other than the AARP, which might have filed if they had known how the <laughs> argument was going to go. Shah, you're mentioning the plain view exception 
reminded me of a question that I had wondered about this case all along, and maybe it isn't significant at all, but tell me what you think. Does the fact that this was a civil case matter, you think, in terms of how the case wound up being litigated and decided and its potential impact in criminal cases where we usually think of the Fourth Amendment applying? Um, I, I don't think so, really, except insofar as there's a pattern of cases going up to the Supreme Court uh, in the criminal context where the defendant prevails and then the police officers end up winning at the end of the day on remand under the good faith exception. Uh, so I wouldn't expect wouldn't expect that to happen here. So it can, it can affect how things go on remand in that sense. But in terms of how the justices were thinking about the case, I, I don't think so. I think they were thinking about the implications of this for the criminal context which is where it's more likely to arise than as a damages action. Um, so, you know, you guys opened up a new practice. You did it during the pandemic. I didn't manage to do anything productive during the pandemic, but um, you guys did that. So can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the challenges that you had and how's it going? It's been challenging and exciting and fun. I mean, there's a lot of building from scratch that we're doing, both in terms of building the internal team that we have and just how we operate and then externally what what we're shaping the practice to look like. It's interesting to start in a pandemic. Um, I think that uh, the nature of appellate work has made that a little smoother than one might expect because we spend so much mm-hmm. time researching writing anyway. And then it's been very helpful to me that Chai and I have worked together before. So we already have a dynamic that makes um, the remote element West of an issue in that regard. But we've been doing lots of fun work so far um, and, and just really interesting work. We have appeals that were already in Scadden's pipeline and then other new significant appeals and in, in business cases. For example, Shai and I are working on a, um, a federal preemption case for airlines about the preemption of state meal and rest breaks for airline attendance and uh, we are also doing a lot of work at the Supreme Court. It's, it's been terrific that Skadden has a really robust pro bono practice that the firm has just been dedicated to pro bono work for a long time. And our Supreme Court practice fits nicely within that. Um, that this case, the Camellia case, was is an example of that and just the firm's support with what we're doing. We have two cases that are pending at the cert stage right now before the Supreme Court. So one of them is about the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act and the statute of limitations for parents' fee actions after the parents have prevailed uh, under their for their IDA action for their child. Um, and we're actually waiting any day now for the United States views on that. The court called for a response for the views of the U.S., which is usually a promising sign, at least that they're looking at the case closely. So we'll see. Stay tuned for seeing what happens there. And then just earlier this week, we filed a reply brief in a case about the constitutional rights of sexual assault victims. So we just have a a really great, interesting mix of different cases. Well, that's great. Well, um, we will be keeping an eye out for those cases that you mentioned. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Kimberly, another thing that happened this week, barely, was the start of this Biden Supreme Court commission. You were covering that hot and heavy meeting. Can you tell us all of the controversy that went down there? Um, Well, it was like a really giant square of Hollywood squares. There were like 50 people in this, you know, 
one Zoom meeting. Um, actually, it was a lot more than that. Uh, you know, most of the commissioners were there, and this was their first uh, meeting. They said they planned to have several, um, but this one was really just swearing in commissioners, telling them, you know, kind of what they were going to be doing, um, what kind of areas they were going to be studying. And it looks like they're all wound up until late June when they'll have another commission meeting. This one, though, will probably be more substantive and it will have testimony from the public. So watch out for that. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. And you have to go to our TikTok or Jordan will not be your friend. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.